welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor John Quiggan of the University of Queensland. John Quiggan is an Australian economist, a professor, and an Australian Research Council Federation fellow, and a laureate fellow at the University of Queensland, and a member of the Board of the Climate Change Authority of the Australian Government. His work has been acknowledged globally, and in October 2020, Professor Quiggan was named the 20th most influential economist in the world. A prolific author and blogger, Professor Quiggan's most recent book, Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly, was published by Princeton University Press in April 2019. John, you are very welcome. Great to be here. So, for a long time, productivity growth in many first world economies, such as the United Kingdom, was seen as stagnant, despite wide-ranging attempts at microeconomic reform. And yet, in a recent article in The Conversation, you argued that COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in the greatest productivity breakthrough of the century. Perhaps you might start by explaining exactly what has happened. Well, um, as soon as the pandemic hit, um, a large proportion of the workforce uh, was forced to work from home under very unfavourable circumstances. Of course, uh, uh, another large proportion wasn't able to work at all, and that's been uh, the core of the economic problem in the in the pandemic. But uh, looking at the large group of essentially office workers uh, who couldn't work from home, uh, what was striking is that uh, uh, contrary to the expectations of many, the uh, white-collar economy really didn't miss a beat. And uh, this despite the fact that uh, in many cases, uh, as well as having no preparation, uh, workers had thrust on them the task of childcare, uh, learning you know, of homeschooling, uh, so that um, uh, you couldn't think of a less favourable circumstance under which to uh, try out remote working, and, and yet uh, everything went on uh, seemingly as if as if nothing had happened. So that um, if you dealt with a business, everything seemed to go uh, very much as it had when people were in the office uh, turning up every day. Now, when you look at uh, uh, when you look at how much time people spend travelling to and from work each day, uh, this supposedly is a constant that goes back to Paleolithic times that on average um, the trip to work takes you 30 minutes, whether that's uh, uh, walking or uh, taking the bus or driving long distances, that's the average, of course, that is variation around that. Uh, that's an hour a day, which is, is something like 12% uh, of, of, uh, of the time you allocate to work is spent not working but travelling. If you think of half the workforce getting the benefit of that, that would be something like a 6% increase in productivity, uh, which, as these things go, is huge. And is this something that has been isolated to certain economies, so you know, d developed Western economies, for example, or is it being evident worldwide? Well, certainly throughout the, um, throughout the OECD-type world, uh, this has been happening. It's, it's uh, of course, you need... Uh, a service economy and you need computers for, for this to happen. So obviously uh, in countries that are still uh, large agricultural, uh, the only way obviously to grow rice or wheat is to get out there in the field and, and that hasn't changed. Uh, but it hasn't been uh, specific to particular economic structures within the OECD. It's happened uh, more or less to everybody and it's worked more or less everywhere. 
Okay, if we take a step back then, uh, perhaps explain, you know, why is productivity in and of itself important? If if over, you know, the, the 80s and 90s and into the noughties, so many governments were trying to pursue microeconomic reforms to enhance productivity, why is productivity so crucially important? Well, productivity is kind of a problematic concept. I mean, when you look at the reforms that were uh, uh, that were introduced, many of them really consisted just of people working harder. Um, and indeed, uh, uh, there was a famous occasion in Australia when the uh, treasurer, uh, the secretary of the treasury, said, uh, uh, "We have to improve productivity." And two different news organisations headlined that their reports: "Australians must work harder," because we'd learned that when governments talked about productivity. That's all they meant. But if we mean the ability to produce the goods and services we need with less effort, uh, that's precisely the sense in which uh, a remote working potentially offers an improvement in productivity. So it wouldn't necessarily increase output. What it would do was reduce the labour we put into it, uh, the particular and often very unpleasant labour of commuting to and from work. And so in, in the given instance, how do we know that this isn't simply a case of people working harder or perhaps even being busy fools just to justify their continued employment while all of this goes on around us, as opposed to working smarter? Well, that's a good question. I think um, uh, obviously um, that there is some evidence from things like looking at when people turn their computers on and off uh, and uh, that increases a little bit with homeworking, uh, but on the other hand, uh, and this is conjectural, I guess, it seems likely that um, uh, somebody working from home, and especially with uh, kids unexpectedly at home, probably spends more time away from the computer during a workday than the average office worker spends. I mean, we know, of course, lots of office workers spend quite a bit of time on their computers, but not doing office work. But still, it seems likely that uh, the net input of, of labour wasn't increased. Now, to, to nail that down, you really need things like time use surveys and so forth that we haven't seen. But uh, you certainly see among among those workers who don't have childcare responsibilities, uh, a very large proportion uh, very much found uh, that remote working was a favourable uh, experience. Of course, it was very different from people who also had to take care of their kids. Exactly, and I think it's that that kind of challenge that you're highlighting. And I know in, in many countries, um, children, etc., are back at school, and and uh, people nonetheless are working from home in in many cases still. So, to to what extent would you see this productivity increase as something which is sustainable and and will be durable into the long term? Or to to use the line I think you used yourself in a, in a Guardian article a number of years ago, a temporary blip or a statistical illusion just caused by the pressure of the pandemic. Uh, my view is um, there's going to be two things going on once we get past uh, one we, once we get past the emergency stage of the pandemic, where where it's necessary to stay home because of pandemic restrictions. That's going to last quite a while, I think, uh, because. Uh, the experience of premature opening, I think, has has led uh, will lead most societies, both governments and employers, to be pretty wary of getting people back to the office just because they like to see them. Uh, when there's where's the risk of, of renewed outbreaks, and when higher priority things like getting kids back to school uh, have have to be have to be pursued. So I think we'll be going on for a while. I think when it's over, I think what we'll see is that. Um, uh, 
that some things people will value, and I think particularly one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings uh, with, with uh, closely with colleagues will be important. Uh, and so we won't see people working five days a week from home necessarily. On the other hand, I think we'll see um, uh, opportunities uh, from the fact that now everybody, whether they like it or not, is familiar with Zoom and similar technologies. We'll see opportunities that weren't there before, which will, will uh, lead to uh, ultimately to a larger range of things being done remotely. And, and in my own experience, um, uh, I'm doing a lot more invitations to talk to large groups of people all around Australia. Uh, those things just wouldn't have been feasible. Uh, well, they were feasible, of course, but they simply weren't done. People were in the habit of saying, if we have a meeting, we'll all get together in a room and we fly the speaker uh, into another state and put them up in a hotel, rather than saying, look, we just put this up on the web, invite whoever wants to come uh, yeah, from all around Australia, but of course, in principle, uh, from at least all through our time zone or anywhere in the world. So I think those kinds of things uh, will lead to uh, very sustained reductions in various things, and particularly, I think, in business travel. Most of what you've been saying so far sounds kind of positive. It sounds like there's lots of lots of benefits coming out of this, but surely there are also some downsides. I'm thinking both for organisations and for individual workers. Surely things like stress and, and, and pressure might also increase as a consequence of this increased productivity. Uh, my guess is with workers, it's it's going to be. Uh, a mixed bag, but basic, basically, um, uh, basically come out neutral. Obviously, uh, on the standard big five things, uh, introverts are shown to love this stuff, and extroverts are shown not to like it so much. Um, it's almost, you know, I think, uh, it, it's uh, very unclear and depends on the organisation uh, which which of those groups is is more productive. I think it will certainly certainly force organisations to operate differently and. Uh, particularly, I think some styles of management, you know, the kind of management that relies very much on walking around and looking at what people are doing, uh, as opposed to looking at the output they produce, uh, that's going to be a very difficult style. So, so we'll have to, we will certainly have organisations will have to operate differently. Uh, I think, as I say, some some people clearly are finding this uh, very unpleasant and really want to get back and meet and chat to people at work. Uh, other people are very happy that uh, rather than uh, be, spend their days uh, with a bunch of work colleagues. Uh, they can spend them spend their days uh, at home with their uh, with their spouse, for example, uh, and that they yeah, their socialisation is done outside the workplace. Is there a risk as well, though, of uh, presenteeism and people feeling that they need to be there and they need to be have their computer turned on so that the boss can can see them or at least uh, check that they're there? And that's sort of adding so psychological pressure to, to people. Well, I think I mean presenteeism is a big issue, but, but fairly clearly, obviously, uh, the the standard form of presenteeism is making sure people are physically present, whether they have anything or not to do. And at uh, the extent that you try and push that further by exerting direct control over over the computer, uh, that I think is has has been much more difficult in the state of the pandemic. That is, there isn't, uh, uh, there isn't a norm of bosses being able to monitor what's happening on people's home computers. I think employers who try and impose that will, will face a good deal of resistance. Now, obviously, that will uh, 
that will be fought out different ways in different workplaces, but uh, I suspect that uh, uh, employers who want to keep high quality staff will find uh, that kind of monitoring to be, uh, uh, to be counterproductive. And as I say, I think uh, a positive benefit will be uh, undermining a physical presenteeism, which I think has been uh, a hugely negative force in quite a lot of workplaces. No, indeed, and it reminds me of a story I heard a week or two ago about a, a manager in, in England who insisted that all of his staff had their cameras turned on at all times so he could see them and so he could tell them what to do when whenever something occurred to him, which you know, clearly is, is, is much, more, uh, much more invasive. Do, do you feel, though, that as the pandemic goes on, there will be greater innovation sort of uh, facilitating ever greater productivity or, or is there a uh, I guess a, a loss or do you expect a loss of productivity over time as this goes on? Well a bit of both I think um, yeah, very clearly you know, the, the forced learning that, that went with Zoom was yeah I mean not the way anybody would recommend organizational training but obviously uh, despite the problems we all still have of somebody not being muted and so forth or people being muted let alone of course people having the camera on when they think it isn't on <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we have learned uh, read, you know, learned to evolve a bunch of conventions about how to use the different facilities so that um, uh, so that in fact um, things like meetings uh, run very effectively under zoom I, I would say more effectively in general than physical meetings ever have whereas uh, having done those kinds of things in the past uh, uh, remotely because I've always been keen on this uh, it was very difficult to get things organised. Uh, each each episode had to be each thing had to be set up separately with technicians, and and the questioning was always kind of tricky. So I think we'll find more and better ways to exploit this now that now that everybody's used to the idea. I think there are going to be uh, are going to be issues with uh, bringing new people into organisations and so forth. Although it's important to remember that uh, that task, which used to be pretty informal, is now uh, fairly thoroughly professionalised in a way that uh, reduces the role of direct personal contact. So these days you don't you don't turn up and be shown around. Uh, rather, HR has some kind of process, and, and typically that HR process could probably largely be done remotely. And you touch on a really interesting point there in, in terms, for example, not just of you know the the, the practicalities of. You know, where do I sit? When do I go for lunch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but also that just the basics of organisational culture, and and how people can kind of adapt to and and even just learn about what is an organisational culture. Uh, and I can see that that would be a lot harder when it's mediated through uh, through technology. I think that's right. I mean, there's. Um, I think one of the features I think will be. Um, and, you know, I'm here speaking as an academic to some extent, but I think it's, it's likely to happen more generally. Um, a, weak, a weakening of the boundaries of organisation, so that you know, when physical presence is the deal, you do indeed run into people in the water core and all that kind of all that kind of thing, and that's how lots of ideas are generated. If you're at home, um, you, you're obviously doing your work and going to, to work meetings, but in your spare time, uh, you're running into people in your field on discussion discussion groups and so forth who, who aren't in the same organization so i think uh, i think that is going to be an issue that uh, uh, that the specifics of organizational culture are going to be um are going to be uh, undermined to some extent by um 
not by individuals. And of course, one of the points about the whole pandemic is uh, it's going to be most effective when it reinforces trends that are already underway. The shift to remote working was already happening very slowly. Similarly, uh, for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that organisations in the last few decades haven't treated their workers very well, uh, there's been uh, a steady shift away from you know, what was called in the 1950s, the organisation man, towards uh, each person looking out for themselves, working for an organisation in a very contractual sort of way, and um, both sides being aware that the other one could um, could break off that relationship uh, at relatively short notice. And and I suspect uh, I suspect that's going to uh, that's going to continue, uh, and and to some extent be uh, exacerbated if you think it's a bad thing, or accelerated if you think it's a good thing. Uh, by, by remote work. And, and does that suggest that the future for, for example, unions will be different to how it's been in recent past, that they may either re-emerge or actually they may fade away as a consequence of that possibly more atomized way of working? Well, certainly, I mean, there's an interesting question because, um, and obviously I don't know the situation in, um, in Ireland, but in Australia, access to workplaces has become a huge problem for unions, and so I think um, uh, you know, there's been a long, long string of anti-union laws, which have basically made it very difficult for union organisers uh, to get on site. So I suspect that uh, I'm certainly seeing more activity from uh, my union virtually uh, than we really had uh, when um, uh, when you had to um, had to meet uh, physically and in person. So. Uh, it does depend. I think if you if you had um, you know, uh, an office workplace where the union was strongly uh, strongly embedded and where uh, people would go around and talk about the union on work time, then I think that would be uh, uh, that would be weakened. But in Australia, at least, uh, you're probably breaking ten different laws doing that. You mentioned there as well the the ability of people to attend different meetings with uh, people from outside their organization whether they're you know webinars or their seminars or lectures or whatever uh, do, do you feel that that actually might lead to new forms of, of, of innovation as we, we get a different sort of, of cross fertilization of ideas so people aren't just talking prim primarily to people within their own organization and, and that may lead to, to different forms of of uh, creative thinking and uh, innovation. Well, yes, in, indeed. I mean, I mean, the internet has already done that. I mean, most of the technological progress of the last thirty years. I mean, some of it has been you know, um, technological in the strict sense that you know, chips have got faster and faster and smaller and cheaper, and computers have got more powerful. But a huge amount of it uh, has been the internet, which was this public good thing created so academics at different universities could chat to each other. Uh, and um, and really, when you look at the look at the leading edge of the modern economy, it's corporations who found a way to put up little bits of that in, you know, wall off little bits of that internet and and clip the tickets and make you know, sell ads to people as as they come in and out. But uh, the degree to which uh, people already talk to um, talk to other people in their uh, in their fewer hours of it. Uh, has increased massively as a result of the internet, and I think um, uh, the development of of new tools like webinars, uh, or, or the familiarisation of those things, so that people are used to that way of working. I think we'll uh, we'll see more of those kinds of things, more Wikipedia's, uh, more blogs, and so forth. 
Okay, interesting. So far, we've concentrated very much on people who are in work and the, the productivity gains for them. But what about people who have either remained unemployed through this period or perhaps become unemployed as a consequence of you know, changes with their, their employer? How do you think these trends will, will affect them? Is there a new place or a new opportunity or will it actually be consolidated? Well, it's a good question, I mean, and I think it matter largely of social choice. Obviously, in the short run, you know, the big issue has been people who are unable to work because their work involves direct personal contact and therefore the risk of the pandemic. You know, the hospitality sector, obviously, but depending on how bad things are, retail, all sorts of things. And I think um, you know, there's now a big political question. I think we've seen the importance of those people who have tended to be and neglected, particularly you know, health services, aged care workers, and so forth. Uh, but the natural outcome of, of all of this is that the inequality between those people and and the well-off is going is going to increase. I mean, that's certainly been the impact of the pandemic so far. Uh, we're seeing pushback against that, uh, and I think it, there's a big question as to whether that will happen. Uh, there's also obviously a lot of discussion around notions of you know, what will take a job, but really what we're seeing in some sense is we're being reminded of this vast group of jobs which can't be done by robots um, and where uh, we have to question whether they'll be done by insecure gig economy workers with all of the adverse consequences that has, including adverse health consequences because of course people don't have sick leave and so forth. Uh, or whether we'll find a better way of, of doing those jobs. And you raise an interesting point there, because one could imagine that certain chief executives would be thinking, wouldn't it be brilliant if everything was done by a robot or artificial intelligence or some automated manner, because then we wouldn't have to worry about the pandemic at all or future future mm. interruptions. Um, so, so it may well be that that is something that some organisations develop further. It may be. I mean, there's an interesting point which um, has come out of the pandemic, which is that, um, uh, and, and has a lot of implications, that the capital stock the average worker needs uh, isn't very much and can easily be provided out of their own pocket. Um, so it used to be when computers first came in, they were obviously capitalists in the ordinary sense of the term, that the company owned a great big computer and you had a terminal logged into the computer. And without the company's computer, you, you were helpless. Whereas um, now everybody, I mean, some employers, the more enlightened ones, might have paid for their workers' computers, but lots of people have just taken the computer that the kids were gaming on, uh, set it up on the kitchen table, and uh, they're productive workers with no real need for the corporation's uh, capital, which, which does, again, raise the question of, of whether, uh, whether organisations can continue to be uh, as profitable as they are when workers in some sense can be uh, very productive uh, with a very limited amount of capital. And, and will that also perhaps implicitly lead to an increase in what, what might be called double jobbing or, or, or even the gig economy where people say, you know what, I can actually just pick up a few more bits and pieces on the side without anyone knowing and that's okay, I, I can now access that. Well, that's, I mean, these things, I think, will be social choices. We, we can go that way or we can try and restore um, more or less stand employment. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen one of the big downsides of the gig economy, as I've mentioned, is the absence of sick leave, which creates uh, big problems. And also, of course, uh, 
has created big problems for governments trying to uh, trying to put out safety nets. That it's very difficult to work out uh, if somebody has three different employers, uh, which employers should be subsidised to keep them on, if any, uh, all these kinds of things. So I think think there's a lot of complicated issues, um, a lot of complicated issues going on there in how we how we address these things, and, and I think we'll see. Um, possibly not violent conflict, but certainly a lot of conflict between different views of how we should organise things in the future. Okay, so a, a balance between economics and social choices in, in order to, to, I guess, get to, to where we want to be as, as societies. Okay, well, John, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you today. Most appreciated. Thanks for having me. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license